So today for our sermon, we're going to be talking about how we as Christians are to live in these dark times that we're in. I sort of talked over uh, the last month a few times uh, about sort of just the reality of, of our world and sort of where things are, are headed and sort of where we already are as well. Um, our world ever increasingly is just sort of forsaking the Lord, uh, forsaking his ways. Uh, not, it's not just sort of like our world but way off over there somewhere, but, but the reality is it's, it's sort of right here, right in our communities in Westboro, surrounding towns. We just sort of see this all, all around in our country and, and even locally, our state, our community, where we see more and more people just, uh, just falling away from the Lord, wanting nothing to do with him, saying, you know, I, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. I don't want anything to do with God. I don't want anything to do with scripture and his ways. There's just sort of a great rebellion and just sort of hardness of heart uh, toward the Lord and, and the Lord's ways. Uh, and people are just sort of running headfirst into every sort of, of evil and wickedness. Uh, this just ever increasing, just sort of uh, a hatred for Christians, a hatred for the church, just sort of attacks on the church from the outside, persecution bit by bit by bit sort of ramping up. That's just sort of the reality of, of the world that we live in. Not to say there aren't Christians who have it worse in other parts of the world, but there's, there's the reality of just sort of we're living in dark times and it just seems day after day to get sort of darker and more evil. And that's the reality of it. And to ask the question sort of how now are we to live as Christians in these times? And I feel like a, a lot of Christians, plenty of Christians I know, just sort of look at the times we're living in. And for starters, they just sort of scratch their heads and they're just sort of baffled. Like, hey, you know, I think of back when I was younger, you know, whether it was 30 years ago or 40 or 50 or whatever, like, I never thought our world would look like this. I never thought our country would look like this. Like, I'm just sort of baffled and, and awestruck in a bad way and just sort of shocked by sort of where we are. But then the sort of the, the follow-up to that is like, I don't even know how to respond. What, what do I do? How do I engage? It's just sort of like, I'm just sort of baffled by the world around, and I'm just sort of like at a loss as a Christian. How do I how do I respond? What am I to do? And so that's what I want to talk about. We're living in these dark times. That's just sort of a reality of the way things are. And now, how as Christians are we to live? How do we respond and live as followers of Christ? So that's what we're going to take a look at. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures that speak to this. Um, and certainly, as you just think of the, the early church generally, they would have known sort of what dark times looked like. You think of sort of the world in which, you know, right after the time of Christ, the early church, that was a world that was uh, certainly dark. And, and you think of the Roman Empire, people, uh, while the church expanded in this context, certainly, just sort of the de general default was people living in all sorts of sin, uh, all sorts of evil idolatry, pagan ways. Uh, just immorality in every way. So they lived in, in dark times. They understood that. Um, and so just looking at, think of New Testament scripture, sort of that's all written in a sense in the context of, of dark times all around and, and written to followers of Christ. Uh, but we're going to look here first at 1 Corinthians, and I want to set the context especially for 1 Corinthians here. Uh, we're going to read chapter 16, verse 13, the first half of it. And again, to set the context, while, again, as I mentioned, sort of like, look at the Roman Empire as a whole. You think of the time of, here it's Paul writing, sort of the time of, of his writing. Just the whole Roman Empire as a whole, you could look at and say, man, that's a dark sort of evil time. And again, just sort of pagan practices, idolatry, immorality in every way. But even from sort of like your average person living in the Roman Empire, they would have looked at sort of like the Corinthians, the people living in Corinth, and been like, man, those people take it to like the next level, the level of just immorality and wickedness. Like the Corinthians, 
They just take the cake for that in a bad way. And so, again, you think of the context in which Paul is writing here to the Corinthian believers. They knew what darkness was. They lived in the midst of it. There was just sort of filth and evil, uh, wickedness in every way, all around, immorality in every way, sexual immorality in particular in Corinth was just sort of rampant. That was just sort of the way people operated in Corinth. So they were living in dark times. And in that context, here's what Paul says writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the first part of verse 13. He says, be on your guard, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, right? So as we think of, well, how are we to live as Christians in, in dark times? This is the first point that we're gonna look at. We're to stand firm in the faith. We're not to waver, we're not to compromise, we're not to fall away or just sort of, you know, as the culture often wants us to do, just sort of compromise bit by bit, sort of what we believe, the truth of scripture, the truth about Christ, the truth of the gospel, right? We're not to compromise, we're not to waver, we are to stand firm in the faith. And tragically, the reality for many churches in our time, and this isn't sort of like new to our day and age, this, this has been happening even in our country going back centuries to, to sort of the beginning of sort of US history and the colonies and, and, and so forth. Uh, there's the reality of churches not standing firm in the truth of God's word, the truth about Christ, the truth of the gospel, but rather sort of caving to the culture around, caving to sort of the evil and wickedness all around. And, and we've, again, looking historically, you see that in, in just sort of look at even New England and Massachusetts. Uh, this is this is an area founded on solid biblical Puritan roots. Every sort of town that you think of that dates back, you know, a few centuries or, or whatnot, at the center of every town would have had the solid biblical Puritan congregational church. But now you can drive around and go to all those different towns, and there are some that are still solid and biblical, but most of them aren't. You know, at some point they began to compromise the truth of what they stood for, and most of them now are flying rainbow flags and, and don't believe the truth about Christ, don't stand for what scripture says in any way. You really couldn't even, though they might call themselves Christians, in no way do they really follow Christianity. That, that's just sort of the reality of it. Uh, you can think of many of our uh, liberal academic institutions were once sort of solid biblical institutions, Harvard, Yale, you name it. They were there to train up pastors for the work of ministry. That was sort of the original purpose. And again, over time, they started to go theologically liberal. So the conservatives would break away and they'd start their own seminary. But then bit by bit, that would sort of the false teaching would creep in and that would happen again. And again, that's just sort of uh, tragically the cycle that you often see. And I think we're seeing it a lot in, in our time now of, of churches just sort of caving to the ways of the world and the culture. Often it sort of, in our day and age, comes along sort of the, the lines of views on homosexuality or transgenderism, though there can certainly be, be other areas, but those are sort of the big ones where you see churches beginning to compromise the truth, even though we know from scripture, these are wrong, these are, these are sinful things, homosexuality, transgender, and all sorts of other things, of course, uh, as well. Yet churches say, you know, oh, but, but the culture says otherwise, and we don't wanna lose people, and we don't wanna be offensive, and so they begin to sort of compromise the truth of what they stand for, and, and that sort of may start with small compromise Compromises, but then it, it's a slippery slope and it spirals and spirals more. And before you know it, they've totally forsaken uh, the truth of God's word in, in every way, the truth of the gospel. And I think we're seeing that more and more in our day and age for churches. Uh, and I just even want to give sort of an example. This is sort of recent history and sort of my life or, or people I know, uh, speaking of a church that I would look at and, and would have said, oh, they're good. 
uh, they're solid, they're biblical. You know, if I know of someone who's going there, I'd say that that's good. That's a good church. They they stand firm on the truth of God's word. But recently, again, this is just sort of to illustrate the point of churches not standing firm in the faith, tragically. Recently, there's sort of been an issue within the church of, you know, the whole transgender issue where there have been families in the church. It's mostly with their kids who are saying, you know, even though I was born a boy, now I'm identifying as a girl or vice versa. Um, and that's become an issue in the church and people have left over that. And so, you know, the leadership got together and sort of how do we respond? What, what do we do about this? Uh, and ultimately the conclusion they came to, while they would still say this whole transgender movement, this is wrong, it's not acceptable, it's a sin. They made the decision to use the pronouns of a person's choosing. So if someone's biologically a male, but they say, you know, no, I identify as a female and I want to be called she, her, you know, and now I have a new name and it's a female name. They've decided that they're going to use those chosen pronouns and, and that new name. Uh, and, and, you know, from their perspective, that's how we're going to make people feel welcomed and love them and so forth, right? But, but ultimately, really, in effect, what they're doing, whether they realize it or not, is they're sort of implicitly, by using pronouns of someone's choosing that are not accurate to their biology and their DNA, they're implicitly affirming it. That's just sort of the reality. By sort of going along with it, you're sort of implicitly affirming it, even if in your mind you're saying, but this isn't okay, this isn't, this is sin, this is not acceptable, right? You're implicitly affirming it to that person by, by affirming their new name, their new pronouns of choosing. And they might think, well, that's just one small step. You know, we still say that, that this is wrong. And again, I want to illustrate just to back up this point. Scripture is sort of clear on, on this subject. Even if the word transgender isn't used in the Bible, the Bible addresses the idea of a man trying to be a woman or a woman trying to be a man. We see this in Deuteronomy 22.5. It says, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor a man put on a woman's garment, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God, right? Strong language. This is a particularly offensive, grievous sin. It's wrong, right? At this point, the church will still stand on that truth and say, yes, th this is wrong, but again, we'll sort of compromise. We'll begin to sort of compromise to the culture and use your pronouns of choosing. And they might think that's sort of a small step, but, but one little small compromise begets another small compromise. And again, history just shows as you start to cave little bits, before you know it, you're caving a little more, a little more. Before you know it, they'll be affirming that, that, you know, I don't know for this church specifically, but this is often the way of things. They'll be affirming that transgenderism is fine and it's okay. And now that you've thrown away, you know, some of scripture, Deuteronomy 22, 5, as we just read there, what other parts of scripture do you start to throw out because it doesn't fit with the culture all around? And before you know it, you've totally thrown out all of, all of scripture and God's word and the truth. And so you might think it's, it's just one little compromise. It's not the biggest deal, but then it, it begins uh, to spiral. It's a slippery slope. And before you know it, you've just sort of forsaken the whole of God's word. And so again, coming back to, to our, our big point, right? We need to stand, stand firm in the faith right? We need to be faithful to the Lord. That's a word that we're going to kind of take up here a lot, the, the language of faithfulness. We need to be faithful to the Lord in regard to what we believe and not compromise. But I want to speak to, as, again, as I think this is sort of a big issue in the church as more and more churches and Christians are beginning to sort of cave on some of these issues, even though the Bible clearly speaks to them. They're sort of saying, eh, I don't want to deal with what scripture says. I'll just go with the culture and they're compromising the faith. I want to speak to sort of what is the mindset behind that? What sort of drives these churches to, to cave to the culture uh, such that they're not standing firm in the faith? 
Uh, and I think sort of the first thing that sort of drives compromising the faith is really incorrect priorities. That for these churches that make these decisions and begin to cave and, and compromise the faith, uh, what their first priority is, is people. Uh, fundamentally, that's sort of what's going on in their minds is we're all about people. And again, we should love people. We realize that. But still, we have to have the right priorities. And for them, they're thinking people, people, people. We want them to feel comfortable. We want them to feel love. We want, right, we want the best for these people. Um, and that's sort of their view of things. And so they say, well, then let's make them feel welcome. Let's make them feel loved. And if they say using their pronouns of choice is going to make them feel loved, we'll do that. Right now, that isn't the loving thing to do, and I'll talk about that later. But the fundamental problem here is their priority is people over God rather than God first, and then people come second. People are secondary, and God needs to be the priority. Right? If their priorities were correct, they'd say, "Yes, we love these people. We want to care for them. We want all that. But you know, we want them to feel welcome. But God comes first, and here's what God says: This is an abomination to Him. It's sinful, and we need to stand on that truth, and we're not going to compromise. And so often, it's the incorrect priorities, sort of flipping things, where they wind up putting uh, people first rather than God first. And just to, to speak to the importance of putting God first and highlighting this from Scripture, I just want to read a, a couple passages. First is 1 Thessalonians 2.4. Paul's writing, and, and here's what he says. He says, Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but rather God, who examines our hearts. Right? What's Paul's priority? And not just for himself, but he's speaking also of his co-laborers in the gospel. He says, what are we doing? What are we seeking to do? Not, we're not seeking to please men. We're seeking to please God. Right? God is the priority. People come after the Lord. And then what does Jesus himself say? Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Right? We have to get the right priority and order there. Right, It's loving God that's first, God comes first, and then after that, secondarily, and then also love people. Right, But they want to flip the order, these churches that are compromising the faith, and say, oh, people, people have now become first and foremost, and it's all about accommodating people. So now you compromise the faith, and what God said is right, says is right and true, just to appease people. So the priorities are out of whack. But, but then also, even the mindset, most of these churches that sort of start to make these compromises and cave on the truth uh, of, of what God's Word says, again, they have the incorrect priorities, but also the, what they would often say is, we're just trying to love people, right? That, that's what we're trying to do. Our intentions are good. They might say, we want people to feel loved and cared for and whatnot, and this is how they say they're going to feel loved. And my response to that, again, first, have the right priorities, but also to, in a sense, affirm their sin. If you see someone headed down a bad path, a path of sin, the loving thing isn't to sort of applaud them as they go down that path and just sort of affirm them, even though you know that's wrong, that's not good, they're headed down a bad path that leads nowhere good. The loving thing, even if it's sort of difficult to confront, the loving thing, if you really care about them, you're going to say, I don't want to see you going down a bad path of sin that leads nowhere good. And so in love, because I care about you, I want the best for you, I'm going to actually confront you about this and say, this isn't right, this, this isn't what, what God wants, right? That's the reality, and Scripture speaks to that. So that logic of sort of like 
this, this is the loving thing to just sort of accommodate them and affirm them. No, it's not. If you really love them and care about them, then you're going to confront them with the sin in, in a loving way, in a kind and gentle and loving way. You're going to confront them with the sin in their lives because you don't want to see them heading down that bad, sinful path. And we see this spoken of in Scripture. Right? I'm going to read a couple passages for us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And speaking of speaking the truth in love, this has, in the, sense, this has the sense of in every way speaking what is true in a loving way. But part of speaking what is true in a loving way involves the context of if someone is, again, engaged in some sort of sin, not just sort of affirming them and saying, hey, whatever you want, you do you. But again, speaking the truth to them, recognizing they're in engaged in some sort of sinful behavior. And you need to, in love, speak the truth to them, saying, hey, th this, isn't, this isn't right. This, this is wrong, right? This isn't something that honors God. Scripture says that this isn't okay. And you confront them with the truth rather than just sort of, again, affirming whatever it is they're doing. Right? It's driven by love. It should be done in a loving way. That's how you should address it. If someone is engaged in sin, in love, you should be driven to speak the truth to them in a loving way. Lovingly confront them with their sin and say, I want, I want better for you. This isn't okay. This isn't what God wants. It's not what's best for you. And confront them in regard to their sin. Paul also speaks in, uh, about this idea in, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, brothers... If someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so you also won't be tempted, right? So if you see someone caught in some sort of sin and some sort of wrongdoing, again, take that context of you see someone and, you know, they're saying, no, even though I'm biologically this, I'm going to say I identify as the opposite and so forth, or whatever sin it might be, what's the loving thing? Not to just say, Hey, whatever works for you, whatever's your truth, you just go ahead and do it. No, no, what are we to do when someone's headed down a bad path and engaged in sin? Well, we should seek to restore that person. That's what it says. You who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit. So again, it's not done in sort of a harsh and mean and cruel way, but in a gentle, loving, kind way, we should go in and seek to restore them, which means confronting them about the sin that they're living and say, this is not okay. This isn't in line with what God says is right, what his word says. Confront them about it and, and seek to get them to acknowledge it, confess it, repent of it, and be brought back into a thriving, healthy walk with the Lord. And certainly in view here is this is happening within the body of Christ. So if you see a fellow believer engaged in sin, but even if you see someone outside the church who's engaged in some sort of sin, again, the loving thing isn't just to sort of say, I'll affirm you, head on down your bad path, even though I know it's heading nowhere nowhere good. The loving thing, again, is in a kind, gentle, loving way to go and confront them about the sin in their lives. And so, again, this just sort of uh, an error in sort of the way of thinking for these churches that are, that are compromising the faith. First, their priorities are totally out of whack, right? People have become the first priority rather than God and God has become secondary. And also even their view of sort of what the loving thing to do is for someone who's engaged in sin is just wrong. To, to affirm it is not the loving thing, but rather to confront it uh, is indeed the loving thing. So again, coming back, what we've talked about so far, what is sort of that, that first point in regard to how are we to live as Christians in dark times, these dark times that we're in, where we need to stand firm in the faith. And again, using the language of faithfulness, because as I said, we're going to sort of take this up. We need to, to be faithful in regard to what we believe, right? Not wavering, not compromising, not caving in any way, in any way but remain faithful in regard to what we believe uh, 
in regard to the truth of God's word, the truth about Christ, the truth of the gospel. We cannot cave. But also, as we've sort of talked about this, I want to highlight what is what is now sort of our, our second point in regard to uh, how are we to live as, as Christians in dark times. And that, point, that second point is that we need to put God first in everything at all times, put him first above all else. And as you'll notice, the, these points of how are we to live as Christians in dark times, it's not like this is just for when times are bad and we're in dark times. We should be living this way even when times are good and easy, right? Uh, we should be standing firm in the faith at all times, not just when things get bad. Uh, of course, we should be putting God first above all else at all times, not just when things get bad. Uh, but when things are good, it, it's sort of easier to do these things. But then suddenly when we're in dark times and the church is sort of pressed on all sides and attacked, it's easier to sort of, as Christians, as the church, to sort of to give way on these issues. And so it needs to be affirmed all the more strongly in these tough times. So again, uh, we need to remain faithful to the Lord in regard to what we believe, and we need to faithfully put God first above all else. Those are our first two points, but we're going to continue to look at here as we look at other scriptures, how are we to live as Christians in these dark times? So I want us to turn now to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, and I'll read it for us. And again, just to highlight the context here, uh, in 1 Peter, Peter's writing to the churches in Asia Minor, so think sort of like present-day Turkey. Um, and uh, he's, he, the context that he's writing in is that the Christians there in Asia Minor are facing significant persecution. So they're in the midst of dark, evil times. The church is under attack by those outside the church, right? So they're sort of in a context of dark times, and here's what he says in that context. Chapter 1, verse 14, and continuing to verse 16. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Right, in a nutshell, Right, what's Peter saying here? Live godly, obedient, holy, upright lives. And again, this isn't just true for, for dark times. This is true at all times. We should always be living godly, upright, faithful, obedient, uh, holy lives, uh, serving the Lord, following his commands. But again, it, it's maybe a little easier to do, not that we do it perfectly even in good times, but maybe a little easier to do in the good times. But then again, when sort of the church is under attack, evil all around, temptation all, the, all around, it becomes more difficult. And so it, it's right to sort of stress it all the more in the dark times, right? So how are we to live as Christians in dark times faithfully in, in regard to how we're living our lives? Again, using that language of faithfulness, we're to live faithfully in service to the Lord, obeying him. Uh, living obediently, right? Living faithful, godly, upright, holy lives. And I want to speak to a specific area of sort of obedience and what, what the Lord calls us to do, and that is in regard to evangelism and, and being witnesses for Christ. And I want to highlight this, this point for, for a couple reasons. Uh, first is I think the church all across the country and even here uh, highlights evangelism a lot, and rightly so. We have the Great Commission. This is something that we ought to highlight. But I also think sort of it, it, there's a certain way in which I think the American church wrongly, I'll explain how I, what I mean by this, but sort of wrongly views uh, evangelism or, or sort of our role in evangelism. And I'll sort of highlight what I mean by that. Um, and sort of here's what I'm saying in, in regard to evangelism, right? The reality is as we think of what is our role in regard to reaching people for the kingdom uh, and what is God's role? 
Our role is to go out, and again, to use the language of faithfulness, our role is to go out and faithfully share the message about Christ. Faithfully be witnesses for him, share the gospel message. Uh, but we don't have the power to go and change people's hearts and change their minds. That's, that's beyond my power and ability. It's beyond your power and ability. We just have the role of just go out and faithfully proclaim the message. God is the one. This is his role in, in reaching people for his kingdom. He's the one who's going to bring transformation in people on the inside and change their hearts, change their minds, give them repentant faith in him, right? I can't do that. I'm just a mere person that, that's outside of my ability to do. I just need to be faithful to my role in it. I need to go out, faithfully proclaim the gospel message, and then leave the results, leave the fruitfulness up to God. Right. And I think oftentimes the way the American church has sort of thought, and again, this can be valid in, in certain times and certain places, but I think often the way the American church has thought is sort of like, if your church isn't reaching more people for the kingdom, if your church isn't sort of having boatloads of baptisms, tons of people are coming to faith in Christ, if that's not the case for your church, it's because you're doing something wrong. That's your fault, your fault collectively as a church or, or as individually as believers. Surely you've done something wrong if boatloads of people are not coming to faith in Christ. And I would say, again, we need to focus on being faithful to our role in evangelism, in building the kingdom, and that is sharing the gospel message. But God's going to be the one who ultimately brings the fruit, brings the end result, and we need to leave that up to him. And at times, he works in amazing ways. And even if, as we think of sort of our day and age now in certain parts of the world, God's moving in huge ways, ways and boatloads of people are coming to faith in Christ, whether it's in, in parts of Africa or Asia and so forth. But then there are other parts of the world. Think of sort of the Western world, whether it's Europe, the U.S. And again, even in the U.S., you could sort of say there's a little bit of a difference between sort of like the South Bible Belt area a little bit versus like New England up here. And I think if we're honest, if we look at sort of New England, this is an area that, that's pretty hardened toward, toward Christianity, pretty hardened toward the gospel message where most people out there are like, I don't even want to talk about it. I don't want to hear it. Uh, you know, and, and if we're out there faithfully sharing the gospel, but people are saying, nope, not for me. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to believe. Again, the results, that's up to God. That's his business. We just need to do our job faithfully. But I think uh, for many in the church, you can read boatloads of books, and it's sort of like, if you, some church up in New England, aren't reaching tons of people for the kingdom, you're doing something wrong. Uh, and it could be true that churches are doing something wrong, and maybe that's not why they're reaching people. But I wouldn't say it's quite that clear in black and white. I think there are churches. I can think of people here at New Hope Chapel who are out there and faithfully sharing the gospel, and yet, you know, it feels like there's no fruit coming from it. And everybody just sort of seems to be saying, nope, not interested, don't want that, thanks for sharing. Though probably they're thinking, no thanks for sharing, didn't want to hear that. But um, And it feels like nothing's coming of it. But again, we just need to remember our role. We just need to be faithful in sharing the gospel message. But the fruitfulness, that's up to God. Uh, and, and I think we see that in Scripture. I think for those who say, no, if you're out there faithfully sharing the gospel all the time, guaranteed boatloads of people are going to be coming to faith in Christ, they'll run to John 4.35, and I'll read it for us, you know, and I'd say they'd sort of take it a little bit out of context. And it says, Jesus speaking, don't you say, there's still four more months, then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ready for harvest, ready or ripe or white for harvest, as the grain would turn a whitish hue, whitish color when it was ripe for harvest. But And they'd sort of take that and say, look, this is what Jesus has told us in a timeless way throughout all ages is the case. So wherever you are, there's this 
wonderful uh, harvest field that's just ripe for the harvest for God's kingdom. And I'd say Jesus was speaking in a specific context at a specific time. He was saying in his day and age, right then and there, there was a harvest that was ready to be brought in for the kingdom. And again, we see it. Just look at history. You have just sort of this small band of, of followers of Christ, and it sort of explodes on scene in the Roman Empire and sort of comes to dominate the Roman Empire, right? There was a ripe harvest field at that time. Uh, but then Jesus speaking later of when he returns, Luke 18, 8, the second half of the verse, says, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And the implied answer is not really. You know, that doesn't mean there won't be a few followers of his. But the sense here is just sort of when he returns predominantly, people are going to be very hardened in their hearts toward God. They're not going to want anything to do with him. It's not going to be some sort of ripe harvest field for the kingdom. It's going to be quite the opposite. People hardened in their rebellion to God with maybe only a few scattered faithful followers of Christ. And so here's even Jesus saying at one time, man, there's this great harvest field, right? Just right for the picking for the kingdom. And then at the same time, he's saying, but when I come back, it's going to be quite the opposite. And so there can be different times, uh, different places and, and different times in history where sort of the harvest field might look a little bit different. Sometimes it's, it's ripe and ready for great harvesting. And that's wonderful. And I'd say at other times or at other places, it's maybe not as ripe. That doesn't give us an excuse to say, oh, nobody wants to hear the gospel, so I'm not going to go and share with anyone. But it's just sort of having realistic expectations and sort of understanding the context. And I think to some extent, we're living at a time, not when no one wants to hear the gospel message. I don't want to sort of give us this sense of like, it's hopeless. Why even bother? There are people out there uh, in whose hearts God is working. But I want us to, to sort of rightfully understand evangelism, our role, God's role, sort of the context we're in. And, and predominantly, my experience, the experience of others seems to say that we're at a time where maybe the harvest is not quite as plentiful, but we just need to focus on our role. We just need to be faithful in getting out there, sharing the gospel message. And again, we leave the results, the fruitfulness up to the Lord. And just to highlight this, not to belabor it, uh, but I want to read for us one other passage that really just hammers th this point home um, of just sort of our role versus God's role. And it's Isaiah chapter 6, the whole chapter. Uh, wonderful passage. I love it. I mean, I love all of Scripture, but, but I certainly love Isaiah chapter 6. And let me read it for us. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I am among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty." Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, 
until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Right? Why did I pick this, this passage? I want to certainly speak to this passage in regard to what we're talking about today. And here, in a sense, let me sort of paraphrase what God is saying to Isaiah here at his sort of calling and commissioning uh, as, as a prophet. And he basically says, hey, here, Isaiah, I'm giving you this message to bring predominantly to the southern kingdom of Judah, but, but he does also bring it as well to the northern kingdom of Israel. And here's effectively the message, right? You've sinned, you've done evil, right? You've rebelled against me, forsaken me. Uh, forsaken the Lord. And so there's punishment coming. There's judgment coming. Now, if you hear this message and you repent, turn from your wicked ways back to the Lord. Now, that's sort of theoretical. God has chosen that they'll remain hardened in their hearts in rebellion and won't turn and repent. But again, sort of if they were to turn and repent, God, as he says in this passage, would heal them, right? He would relent. He wouldn't bring this judgment upon them. He would relent and they'd be healed. Right. But what does God wind up saying? Hey, Isaiah, this is the message you're going to bring, right? You've done evil, this punishment coming, turn, repent, and, and I'll relent. I'll, I'll bring healing, right? Won't bring that punishment upon you. But he also tells Isaiah, they're not going to listen to you, right? They're not going to listen. You're going to go everywhere. You're going to preach this message. Uh, you're going to proclaim it, but no one's going to listen. No one's going to repent. There's, in that sense, there's going to be no fruitfulness from your ministry and that, that no one's going to, going to turn. Uh, and repent. People are, are going to remain hardened in their hearts toward me. They're not going to want anything to do with me and what you have to say. And that's just the reality. And then I'm going to bring that judgment upon them and level their cities, destroy their, their nation and take them away as exiles. That's what's going to happen. Uh, you know, if you're Isaiah, you probably think, boy, that sounds wonderful. A fruitless ministry. Thank you for that one. Probably a hard ministry to, to be given. Uh, but again, it's not like, well, if nobody listens to Isaiah and repents, it's Isaiah's fault. He's clearly the one who's messed up. Uh, it's his fault. No, God's, again, God's the one who brings the fruit. Isaiah's being told here, your job is just to go and bring this message. You're to bring this message to my people, but I've chosen to allow them to remain hardened in their hearts. No one's going to turn. No one's going to repent. There isn't going to be healing. I'm not going to relent, right? And again, that's God's business. He's in charge of the fruit, the result. It's not like it's Isaiah's fault that, that nobody listened. God had already ordained that. Isaiah just needed to be faithful to his role and just leave the results the fruit or lack thereof up to the Lord. And again, it's sort of the same for us where we just need to focus on our role. We get to go out there, share about Jesus and just leave the results, leave the fruit up to the Lord. We just need to be faithful in our part in evangelism, sharing the gospel message. But I also want to read for us as we continue on thinking of, you know, talking about how we're to live as Christians in these dark times. I want to read one more uh, verse for us and it's 1 Thessalonians Chapter 5, verse 17. Pray constantly. And again, this is one, all that we've talked about, this is for good times and dark times. I don't want us to think it's just for when things get bad. But again, for all of these things, it's just sort of all the more important to highlight it in the midst of, of dark times. We should be praying constantly at all times, but sort of when things get tough, when evil's all around, temptation's all around, the church is being attacked on every side, all the more so we should realize just the importance of, of running to the Lord in prayer constantly, continually, realizing sort of like, man, we're just being attacked everywhere. We're just sort of weak, finite human beings, sort of outpowered, but we can run to the Lord who's infinite in power and just bring everything to him, run to him in prayer. Uh, and so again, at all times, but just sort of how much more so in the midst of dark times should we just be covering everything in prayer, just constantly be running to the Lord 
in prayer. And so again, I want to, to sort of recap here. How are we to live as Christians uh, in dark times? Again, sticking with sort of the language of faithfulness. Uh, we need to be faithful in regard to what we believe, not, not you know, falling away from the faith, not compromising, but standing, standing firm in the faith. Uh, we need to faithfully put God first above all else at, at all times. Uh, we need to live faithfully in our lives, how we're living. We need to live faithfully unto the Lord, faithfully obeying him, living holy, godly, uh, upright lives. In regard to being witnesses for Christ, we just need to be faithful in our role. We need to be out there sharing the gospel message, but remembering God's the one who's going to bring the results and the fruitfulness. If we don't seem to be seeing that, we shouldn't beat ourselves up. Just say, we just got to keep doing our part and leave the rest up to the Lord. And then lastly, we need to be faithful in prayer, constant continual prayer. And that's really our challenge. That's our application as we sort of see the dark times that we're in and the trend seems to be as of now, just things getting a little bit worse and worse and worse uh, in our world as time goes by. We just need to recognize how, what we need to do as followers of Christ. And that's in a sense, in every way, just continue to be faithful to the Lord in every way as we've talked about. And so let's do that. Let's live in every way faithfully unto the Lord as his people in these dark times for his glory. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, we do recognize the reality of the times we're in, not in some sort of depressing way, though we'd love to see people uh, just excited about you and eager to draw close to you and, and see people open the truth, the, the truth about you. But the reality is we're living in times in our current context here in New England and Westboro in this present day and age. These are dark and evil times, and it just seems to be increasing in that direction. Uh, and we want to live faithfully and, and wisely, and as you called us to as Christians. And Lord, that just means being faithful to you as we talked about in every way. May we be faithful in regard to what we believe, standing firm in, in, in your word, standing firm in the faith and the truth of the gospel. Lord, may we also continue to be faithful in putting you first above all else as we see all too often, tragically, Christians, churches putting people above you and you become secondary. May that never be the case. And I know it's not the case here at New Hope Chapel. May we just always put you first, faithfully above all else. May we also be faithful in how we live our lives, just living holy, obedient, godly, righteous, upright lives, Lord, and service to you. May we be faithful in sharing the gospel, knowing our role in building your kingdom. It's just to go out there and proclaim the truth, knowing you're the one who will or will not bring the results, Lord, and just leaving the results, the fruitfulness up to you. And then may we at all times just be faithful in prayer, Lord. At all times, we just need to be running to you in prayer, communicating with you, our great and awesome God, bringing our every request to you. And may we do that. And as we seek to live faithfully as your people in every way in these dark times, may you just be honored and glorified through it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.